Some of the guys over there, lock those doors. Lock those doors. Keep your heads down below the light so no one can see that we're in here. Dim the lights a little bit. It's too bright. I trust you all came on foot and followed the instructions not to come all at the same time. So we kind of discreetly mingled in one at a time. Take your place so as not to draw any attention to our gathering, right? I know you probably heard about the other group of believers across town who uh, the authorities uh, burst into their gathering a couple of weeks ago. Some of them have been abducted, and I know you're worried about them. Some of them are your friends and family. We don't know what happened to them yet, but we also know that they would want you to know that they consider it an honor. If they're suffering for Jesus, they consider it an honor, and uh, they would want our prayers. It's a bit of a strange way to start a worship service, isn't it? It's the way a lot of the world does it. Strange for us uh, who drove in here in broad daylight and parked our cars out in a packed parking lot in one of our three campuses this weekend. Here in America, the sort of changed scenario from what a lot of the world experiences in terms of open religious expression when it comes to Christianity sounds strange to us, but those are the real precautions in so much of the world where it's illegal to worship Christ, to serve the Lord and many, many, many millions of Christians do so at great personal risk every single day. We've been playing Crazy Eights with Jesus this summer, um, and he's been dealing some really weird cards. We've got a strange set in our hands right now. We're looking through the Sermon on the Mount, and there's these eight sayings, these kind of unconventional sayings, probably sayings that that epitomized Jesus' teaching that he preached all throughout. He probably didn't stand and preach this whole sermon one time. It's probably stuff he said, and then these gospel writers under the inspiration of God gathered them together, put them together in a condensed little hand of cards that we've been dealt, and they're all strange. I mean, some of them are just hard to get your mind wrapped around. You know, when you're empty, you're full. When you're hungry, God will bless you. You know, there's, a, there's all this kind of strange upside-down talk in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't there? A little bit of it can be almost understood. Last week we talked about peacemakers. He said, now, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the blue bucket people, if you were here last week. And that almost makes sense. But this week, this last card is a strange one. It's a tough one. You know, in our family we play hearts, heart, card game hearts. We played this this summer a bunch. And uh, one of the rules of that game is... Before you start in with the round, after you get your cards dealt to you, you can take three of your cards and you trade them with someone across the table. In other words, what you do is you look at your cards and you get rid of the ones you don't want. You get rid of your junk. You get rid of the card that's going to mess you up or make you lose. And when, when we get to this part of Crazy Eights, when you get to the Beatitudes and you get to the Sermon on the Mount and you run through the list and you get to this last one, I can handle some of the other ones about peacemaking and being meek and all of that. And this one here is one I want to dish off and give back or give to someone else. Jesus is gathering us up and saying, okay, boys, here we go. Time to get out and, and start living for me. And here's some marching orders. Here's some instructions for you. And uh, so here you go. 
It's hard enough when he says things like turn the other cheek, but then he drops this bomb on us. Matthew 5.10, Oh, and blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for me, in other words. Blessed are those people who, who are persecuted for me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy, fortunate, blessed are you. No matter what it may seem or appear, Blessed are you when you're attacked, when you're slandered, when you're abused, when you're ridiculed, even if you're beaten, when you don't get the promotion, when you're chased out of your house, when family members mutter under their breath about you, when they think you've joined a cult or call you a holy roller. Blessed are you when you're passed over for the promotion. Blessed are you when you're persecuted because you dare to identify with me. Because even though you're made to feel like an outsider in some way in this old world where you're suffering now, you're really a member of my kingdom at that moment. Because you have shown where your allegiance lies and this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Is anyone going to follow me into the next life? That's the message of Jesus. It's a strong, hard word. It's gut check time. You want to be a follower of Jesus? Who do you love? What do you love? You love your comfort? and your conflict-free life? Or do you love Jesus? Because sometimes you're going to have to choose. Who do you love? What do you love? Do you love the American dream? Or do you love Jesus? Not every day, but sometimes you have to choose. What do you love? Your life? Or Jesus. Heaven forbid you might have to choose. The next couple of verses, he unpacks it further. This is the one beatitude, the one card in the hand that he says, I've got to make sure you know what I'm saying. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kind of evil against you simply because you're tied in with me. You know what you should do in those times? Ready for this? Jesus says, be glad about it. Just go ahead and be glad. I told you this was weird. You want to dish this card back too, don't you? Be glad about it because your reward is in heaven. And you know what else he says? You're in good company. Because when you're treated like that, you're being treated in the same way all the great prophets before you were treated. And you're being treated actually in the way that Jesus himself would be treated. The Christian faith, my friends, has always, think about it, always been embroiled in confrontation, conflict, and persecution. Always. Even before Jesus is out of diapers. Right? King Herod gets word that this, some sort of this baby is sort of a king or something. He's like, over my dead body, kill all the babies. And so here's Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus running for their lives over to Egypt of all places. And the family of Jesus has been being persecuted ever since. Jesus himself was constantly harassed. And he made sure all of his followers knew, hey, if you follow me, that's what you're in for. It's all through the New Testament. Somewhere along the line, we thought the idea was we follow Jesus and he makes us all happy and easy. We think that's what the blessed life looks like. Jesus says, no, the blessed life will actually include some persecution. And you get to the entire book of Acts, the New, the New Testament church. It tells us all about the early Christians and they're just all getting the stuffings beat out of them all the time. Turns out, you got this guy Stephen he, who gets stoned there to death. Every time you turn around, Paul's back on the front page of the local newspaper for getting, you know, stoned or within a half inch of his life or thrown in jail or whipped or beaten or something like that. 
But God used it all, didn't he? It was a tool in the hand of Satan, he thought, to sort of squash the fledgling Jesus movement. But instead of pushing it underground, it sort of just squirted out. And it took, like missionary fire, the same message of faith in Jesus all over the known world. And it's still spreading that way today. Christians are running for their lives and taking their faith with them. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's easy to forget all that, isn't it? It's easy to forget as we, as we kind of sit here on our padded chairs. It's easy to forget it. Because maybe it's a card we've actually dished off and it's not in our hand. But if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, this sort of epitome of the teaching of Jesus about what it is to be part of the kingdom of God, we've got to look at this crazy eight card square in the face. There's always, always a choice to make. You know, um, the, the Latin word decision comes from a word in Latin. Uh, the word decision comes from a word in Latin that, that means um, to cut away all other options until there's only one standing. And Jesus was the kind of guy who always forced some kind of choice about him. Decide. And the early Christian summary of our faith was in light of all that this Jesus has done, he's from God and he, he's gonna, he dies and he gives his life and he comes back to death and he, he gives us eternal life. Jesus is Lord became the shorthand way of saying everything we believe. Which is to say there can only be one master, Jesus said, not two. Only one king in your life. Choice. Cut away all their options until there's one left standing. His name is Jesus. And yet, in that early world, anyone who was out of step with the spirit of Rome was in deep trouble. How do you get all this far-flung Roman Empire all on the same page? How do you pull all these little outlying areas and get them all pulling in the same direction, paying the same taxes, and building the same empire? Well, you've got to have a common religion. How are we going to do that? I don't know. Well, they said, why don't we just start worshiping the emperor? And they did. And the emperor became godlike, and they had statues, and you worshiped, and you went to worship, and you made your sacrifice if you were in the Roman Empire, and you said... Caesar is Lord. And Jesus pulls his disciples together and says, um, who do people say I am? Oh, they say you're a prophet. They say all kinds of things. He says, who do you say I am? And in Matthew chapter 16, G Peter says, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And from there comes the early Christian credo. Jesus is Lord. And them's fighting words. The Caesars didn't like it. Nero, as you know, flung Christians to the lions, burned them at the stake, dipped them in tar and then lit them on fire and hung them up as living flames in his gardens, sewed them into the skins of wild animals and sicked his hunting dogs on them so they could tear them to the death. They were stretched on the rack. They were torn in two. They were scraped with pinchers. Molten lead was poured hissing on their heads. Red-hot plates of brass were pressed into the tenderest parts of their bodies. Their eyes were gouged out. Their hands and feet were burned while cold water was poured over them to lengthen the agony. Their crime, they dared to say, instead of Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Polycarp, bishop of Smyrna, was dragged by the mob before the Roman magistrate, and they gave him the choice. They gave him the choice to peel away all the options and to say who it was, Caesar is Lord or die. And those famous words now come from Polycarp. Eighty-six years, he says, have I served Christ and he has done me no wrong. 
How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they tied him to the stake. And as he was being consumed by the fires, he said, I'm grateful to God for the honor he has given me of dying in his name. There's so many of us who've never in our own lives made anything like a sacrifice for Jesus. Have you? The moment when Christianity seems like it's costing you something is the moment when you can finally demonstrate your loyalty to Jesus. And now, like any other relationship, you really have something. Now it's not just a benefit that you add on to your portfolio of things that you've accomplished or accrued in your life. But when you demonstrate some price that you're paying, some cost that you're giving, some sacrifice you're making for that relationship, now you've got something. You've got a real relationship. When you love someone, you sacrifice. Kids know when mom and dad don't really care about the kids because they, they know. But when mom and dad sacrifice and take another job to put them to college or buy school clothes, they know that too. Sacrifice in relationships. It now you've got something there to work with. And Jesus says, who am I to you? Blessed are you if you're persecuted for my namesake because then you're really part of the kingdom of God. You're sacrificing anything for Jesus. If you love something, it'll mean something to you. Jesus said in Matthew 16, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple has to deny themselves and take up their cross. Cross was an instrument of torture, death. It'd be like saying, you want to be a follower of mine? Get ready for the electric chair. Get ready for lethal injection because whoever wants to save their life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? But if you forfeit your soul, well, that's no good. 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a good and godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. There's a choice. When you choose the good and someone in the room doesn't like the good, how does that make them feel? <clears throat> Not good. Now they don't like you. And this is where persecution comes from. If a person drinks too much and they know it, and you choose to not drink, your presence in the room makes them feel something, doesn't it? If you choose chastity in your sexual moral decision, but you're around someone who chooses sexual looseness and free sex, your very presence, without saying a word, is an indictment in a way. Darkness doesn't like light. And whenever we're threatened or indicted, we usually punch first. And this is where persecution comes from. The Bible teaches this. You can read it in John you want God to be the center of your leisure and the God to be the center of your work, God to be the center of your school, you don't have to try to make enemies. You'll find some. So one option is just blend in. Don't be too extreme. Don't do anything out of the ordinary. Just be kind of one of those casual Christians. But Jesus says, blessed are you if you're actually persecuted for hanging out with me and being known as one of my people. Recently, you saw probably ISIS releasing pictures of 21 men beheaded. Their crime being people of the cross. Recently, some Christians had to flee Syria because they weren't safe. People knocked on their door one morning, said, you have to go. They feared for their lives, and the authorities came and painted a big N on their home. It stands for Nazarene, their sort of code word for the Christians there. 
They, they ran for their lives wisely and landed in Lebanon where today they're living uh, in a tiny plot that they're paying money for. It's a chicken coop essentially to have a roof over their heads so they can have protection and shelter despite the brutal winter and snow they're eking out in existence. These are not rare, isolated, sort of random little stories we had to dig to find. No, no, no. Are you aware that persecution is rampant all over the world? Watch the screen and let's learn just a little bit. More than 765 churches were destroyed in Nigeria. Pastor Eugen, a missionary to Bhutan, was sentenced to prison. His crime? Showing a film on the life of Jesus. After communism took over North Korea, an estimated 300,000 Christians disappeared. On the first day of classes, the Sudanese Air Force bombed a Samaritan's Purse-funded Bible college. Amazingly, no students or faculty members on campus were harmed, but two buildings were destroyed. The Burmese army is doing its best to rid Burma of the Kachin people, a predominantly Christian people group. One man who had lost one of his children asked me, who cares, and who do I complain to? Holy Trinity Church of Moscow was destroyed on September 6th with government approval. The pastor, Vasily Rumiyuk, was forced to stand and watch as everything of value was carted off by the police. An estimated 30,000 Christians are currently detained in labor camps throughout North Korea. Conditions there are brutal. Half of them die from starvation or malnutrition, while the rest succumb to exhaustion, disease, and torture. After Egyptians rallied together to overthrow their country's dictatorship, Muslim radicals began burning Christian-owned buildings, kidnapping people, and threatening that any Christian who dares to leave his house will be killed. Asiya Bibi, a Pakistani wife and mother, was beaten, charged with blasphemy, and sentenced to death. Her crime was boldly declaring to mocking co-workers, Our Christ sacrificed his life on the cross for our sins. Our Christ is alive. On July 23rd, Pastor Ponichin George was kidnapped and forced to endure a week of near-death torture. Friends, in the first 300 years of Christianity, before it was legalized in Rome, for 10 generations, Christians were underground, hiding, worshiping in the catacombs. They, they dug 600 miles of tunnels under the city of Rome where they could gather for worship, share the Lord's Supper together. And many of them by the thousands were buried there when they were found. But do you know that more Christians suffered for their faith in the 20th century than in any previous century? In fact, in the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith than in all of the previous 19 centuries combined. 
That was the 20th century. Unfortunately, the trajectory is getting worse every year. The film you just saw was about one year, 2011. 2012 was worse, much worse. 2013, it doubled the number of violent attacks on Christians around the world. 2014 was the most violent year of per Christian persecution in the history of the planet overall, not in sheer numbers only. Last year, 4,344 confirmed executions or murders of individual people for their faith in Christ. Hundreds more missing, concentration camps, pressed into slaveries, deported, refugee camps, and whatnot. Every month, 322 Christians are killed for believing in Jesus. That's 70 every week. That's 10 a day. And the time it will take you to drive here, sit through this service, get back in your car and drive in public back home, another one has lost their life. 214 churches are destroyed every month. 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians, such as abductions and rapes and arrests and forced conversions and forced marriages and seizing of property and torture. 75% of the world's population lives in some severe religious restriction area. 60 countries of the world. The new watch list has just put out and uh, there's 50 countries where it's serious business to be a Christian. You can read what those countries are. North Korea is about the worst. Niger, Sudan, Somalia, places in India where you've got radical Muslims where you've got radical Hindu extremists, where you've got nationalistic governments that are attacking or see Christianity as a threat. What do we do about all this? Let's use our time that remains. In this really sober card, we just wish wasn't dealt to us at all. I wish it wasn't in the Bible. I wish Jesus hadn't said it. I wish it wasn't all true. Don't you? But what can we do? How, how do we deal now with the cards that have been dealt to us? The first thing I would say to us, it's so important, and this is one of the main things we wanted to accomplish in this weekend experience, is to pray for them. To pray for them. Pray. To raise our awareness level, to get out of our little bubble. Part of being a Christian means you take on an ache that you're never quite free from because you ache a little bit with the heart of Jesus. You say, Jesus, I want to see the world as you see it. I want to care about lost people the way you do. I want to care about your church the way you do. And so we pray for them. Colossians 3, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, is the apostle Paul who spent so much of his time in prison, you know, and here's, here he says, he says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. He's in chains as he writes, but he says, pray that God will open the door. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains, he says. Remember my chains. Can you, can you picture that? If you're sitting in jail somewhere, suffering, you don't know if you're going to live or die. And you've got an opportunity to write a letter. You're going to say, will you, will you remember me? Will you pray for me? And friends, this is the cry and the plea of people who are our brothers and sisters all over the world. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, reminds us that we're all a body. The, the church is one universal body. Every part of every, uh, every Christian all over the world is part of the same body, filled with the same spirit. We follow the same Lord. We're part of the same family. And if one part suffers, we all suffer, the Bible says. 
If one part's glad, we're glad with it. When one member suffers, we all suffer. Hebrews 13 says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them, as if you're right there with them. Care enough to pray. David Platt tells of a dimly lit room in a country in Asia where it's illegal to worship Christ and he's there with 20 leaders who are circled around um, from all over the region. They've come, they've, uh, they've ridden their bikes all day, they've got sweat on their foreheads because they have uh, walked for miles to get there. Their Bibles are open and the lights are dimly lit again as we spoke at the beginning because if they're caught they could lose their land, they could lose their jobs, they could lose their families, even their lives. In hushed tones they begin to speak one by one about some of the challenges they're facing. One pastor says, you know, the people in my church, a bunch of them have been kidnapped and taken away to isolated places. We think they're being tortured. We know that the group that has done this has a habit of cutting tongues out. We're very worried. And as he shares the dangers that his church is facing, tears begin to well up in his eyes. He says, I'm hurting. I need God's grace to help me lead my church and be a friend and strengthen my faith. Immediately a woman on the other side of the circle begins to speak up. She says, some people in my church were recently confronted by government officials. They're pressuring, they're threatening to say if they don't stop gathering for the Bible study, they're going to lose everything they have and they're really trying to decide what to do. She asked for prayer to know how to help lead her people even when it costs everything to follow Jesus. As you looked around the room, you could see everyone now is in tears. And they're all sharing one by one the struggles that they have. And each of the struggles that they share kind of become the struggles of the others. And no one is crying alone anymore. And someone finally just said, we need to pray now. And so they all just went to their knees and their faces go on the ground and they begin to cry out to God. But they don't use fancy, flowery, theological words. They just talk to God out of their hurting and praise-filled hearts. God, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you, Lord, for your power of forgiveness. Jesus, we give our very lives to you. We're so grateful and we trust you. Jesus, help our brothers and sisters. May your game, name be glorified in all that we do. They wept and they prayed. And about an hour passed. The room grew quiet and they rose from the floor and there on the floor you could see a ring, a puddle, of tears in a circle around the room. If it rains in Harford County, our attendance will be down at Mountain because the sacrifice of getting out in the drizzle is a little great for some. Puddles keep people away here. But these Christians, for them, puddles of tears were the offerings they were bringing. And it seems like Scripture is inviting us to join them in the circle just for a little bit, to let your knees hurt a little bit on the wooden floor of a dimly lit room in China for a few moments. This is your family. Pray for them. Let the uncomfortable card be dealt to your hand and remember them. The fact that we live in a faraway country is less important than the fact that we're part of a very close family. And while we're praying, we have to remember Jesus while he's dealing cards we don't want. He's the, he's the one who said, doggone it, I wish he hadn't said this. I, don't, don't get mad at me. I just tell him how he wrote them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So while we're praying for our family, we need to pray for those radical extremists, those Islamic fundamentalists, those 
those ISIS groups, those radical nationalists, those Hindu extremists, those in Sharia law in Pakistan whose penal code says if you stand up and say Jesus is Lord, you are subject to death. We're to pray for them? Why, yes. If you want to do more than pray, that's good. But be sure you pray. You can go to websites like Voice of the Martyrs, persecution.com or opendoorsusa.org. Amazing websites, tons of information, and lots of ways you can get involved to write real letters to real people who are imprisoned all over the world, to sign petitions, to get involved politically and other things that you might want to do. It's number one, though. At the very least, can we care enough to remember their chains and pray? Second, second, I think we have a lot to learn. Don't you get that feeling? Don't you get the feeling when you look at the, the host of where Christianity is growing in the world today, many of, uh, many of those places are under persecution. And it's a version of Christianity that feels more robust than what I see when I look in the mirror. Do you feel like there might be something to learn from our brothers and sisters who are living out of faith that actually feels more like what you find on the pages of the New Testament scriptures than maybe what we sometimes do? It's a radical faith. It's a real faith. Here's another letter, not from Scripture, but from our own day. A friend of mine who wrote on the back of paper napkins this letter which was taken out of a prison cell in China. I'm writing to you today from solitary confinement. It's a cell inside the maximum security prison here to thank you for your prayers for us in this ordeal. Sometimes I feel like I've been deserted and I'm alone on this battlefield, but I know that people like you are standing with me and are upholding me in prayer during my trial of suffering. Will you please ask the people to pray for me? I'm ready to die, he says. My only regret is I only have one life to offer my master who suffered and died for me. I'm not alone in this prison cell. Jesus is the center of all my pains and frustrations. He's at the center of my struggles. He's helping me survive. He's comforting me, teaching me to endure. No matter what men may do to me, beat me, lie to me, make false accusations against me, or persecute me, they will never take away my faith for him and my deep love for his church. No amount of chains or bars can stop the spread of his truth inside or outside these walls. Friends, that man, I've met that man. He's no superhero. You know what he is? He's a, he's a real disciple of Jesus. That's, what, that's not a super disciple. That's a disciple of Jesus. And I think we all have something to learn from that about letting our own hearts be knit to Jesus with such a trust that come what may, we're with him. Maybe something else we could learn is what someone says one time is that we need to learn to build our own cells. You need to learn to build your own self a cell. You know, uh, one Chinese church leader spent 23 years in prison and said this to Christians who, who weren't facing persecution, people like us. You know what he said? He said, I was pushed into a cell. You might have to push yourself into one because you have no time to really know God. You need to build yourself a cell. Find some way for you to, to do what persecution did for me. Simplify your life and know God more deeply. I think we have something to learn, don't you? We can learn from how weakness is a path to power. We read it in the Bible, in my weakness I am made strong, but we're so busy being strong we never really get a chance to experience weakness. But when you're persecuted, you do. When, it's, when Jesus is all you have, He's real. And part of me really wants that. I don't want the persecution to go with it. But maybe we need to learn something. That in our weakest state, 
as one Egyptian Christian said. In my weakest state, I had an incredible realization that Jesus loved me right then and he was more real to me than ever. True empowerment doesn't come from human means. It comes from Jesus alone. We need to learn that overcoming is greater than deliverance. We, we always want to be delivered because we don't like to be uncomfortable for one second. But the Christians all over the world who are being persecuted don't ever pray to be delivered. They, they pray for strength to overcome whatever comes. They don't pray for the persecution to end. They ask us to pray that they would stand strong through it. So many people in America get mad at God if, if one little thing doesn't happen right and they're not blessed and happy on their terms. Maybe we have something to learn. We can learn that extreme hurt requires extreme forgiveness. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing as they persecuted him to the death on the cross and divided his garments. A Christian widow from Iran said, I only had hatred in my heart for my enemies who had murdered my husband. But one day a miracle happened. God taught me how I could love my enemies. Can you imagine? She said, I've been praying for this, but I really didn't want it to happen. But gradually through a process of ups and downs, God answered my prayer. That woman forgave. How many of us are trapped and embittered in the, the sort of venom that just lives in us because we will not take Jesus at his word and set ourselves free from our own prisons, our own persecution cells of unforgiveness? Above all, we can learn to tether our hearts to Jesus alone for our greatest joy, to make God our supreme, above all, affection, greater than anything this world has to offer. We can learn that from our brothers and sisters who've had everything stripped away. When everything is finally stripped away, that's when you discover what you really have. And if you've tethered your happiness to your success and to your home and to your marital bliss and to your children's success and to your portfolio and, and, to, and to having people speak well of you, if you've tethered your joy to that, it's all going to go away one day, one way or the other. And when it does, either you have joy or you don't. And the only way you have joy is if you have Jesus. If you tether your joy to Jesus... Where is your joy tethered? Like the woman, Lucia. They came and took everything out of her house to sort of force her out of town because she was one of those people of the cross. She lives in Mosul. She says, we have lost all of our possessions, but we haven't lost Jesus. And that means we haven't lost our joy. We need to pray for them. We need to learn from them. It seems like another takeaway for us might be that we would just stand firm ourselves. To, use, to look to the example of millions of Christians who are paying a price to follow Jesus and let that embolden our own faith. Let it encourage us. Let it make us ready for persecution if it comes. We don't have a lot of the severe persecution of a physical kind in this country. There are great concerns all around us about 
how the tide has turned and freedom of religious belief seems to be in question. If you're a Christian who holds traditional, historic, orthodox beliefs and moral values on most things, you're going to be questioned. You're going to be called a bigot. You're going to be seen as a pariah. And, and, and you're, you're going to just wake up to the reality, if you haven't already, that religious liberty is being set aside by the majority in this country. It's coming. It's here. Maybe this passage, this card, will have special application for us in increasing ways. But can we let the witness of those who are suffering now and who have gone before us build us up and remind us that in fact there is something worth dying for? And that means there's something worth living for. Americans aren't sure of that question about whether there's something really worth living for. We're just distracting ourselves to death. Maybe we need Christians in the midst of all of that who are crystal clear about the pearl of great price, Jesus. So much so that even if we're persecuted, instead of whine and bark and punch back and become the ugliest members of our society, we would be like Jesus. He said, blessed are you when you're persecuted. I was persecuted, you'll be persecuted. Take up your cross, follow me. You'll be blessed. Because your great reward is in heaven. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we have to trust that Jesus will take care of us no matter what, even if your life is at stake. Cling so tightly to Jesus. Tether your joy so exclusively to Him that if a decision ever comes down to choosing between choosing life and choosing Jesus, you'll choose Jesus, my friend. Jesus had the same choice. He could have held on to his life and he would have lost us. But he let his life go in order to bring us to himself and now he asks the same thing of you. Let your life go and you'll find it in Jesus. Choose Jesus. This is why Paul can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. He somehow cared more for his Jesus and his eternal reward with him than he did his own life. I love the story of John Patton who served 10 years as a pastor but felt a call from God to go to South America to these crazy Indians down there and everybody knew they were cannibals and they didn't deal well with outsiders. Someone had gone there 20 years ago and he, got, he was killed, eaten by the cannibals. He feels called to go there and everyone's like, don't go there, they're going to eat you up, they're going to eat you alive. I love, I love his response to one guy. Can, this, can you imagine this being you? He says, well, I appreciate your concern, Mr. Dixon, but you are now getting advanced in years and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave where you will promptly be eaten by worms. I confess that if I can live but if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals now or worms later. And in the great day when the Lord receives both of us in my resurrection body, it'll rise up and be as beautiful as yours, and we will see our risen Redeemer. Friends, blessed are you when you have that kind of, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And while here, we're going to live out all these crazy eights. We're going to be the peacemakers and the meek and the righteous. We're going to be the people that turn this world upside down. But if my life goes, I remember what Jim Elliott says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep anyway in order to gain what I cannot lose. Your reward is great. Romans 8, 18. I consider the present sufferings, all the stuff you may think you're experiencing, all the stuff all over the world, they're nothing, nothing 
Nothing. Pull my fingernails out one by one. Scorch me with hot irons if you want to. It's nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us one day in Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, I leave you, I leave you with the story from the Old Testament of Daniel. His buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and a Winnebago. Do you remember that story? Some of you need to look it up in the Bible. Daniel, those are the names, I think. Something like that anyway. These three guys were so firm in their faith in a very persecutorial environment in those days in Babylon. But they would not move their loyalty to God when everybody else was doing it. When they knew it would cost them something. They said, God can deliver us, and even if he doesn't, we don't care. We're not bowing down to that God. They peeled away every option, came down to one, and they stood firm with God, and they were persecuted for it. They were thrown into a fiery furnace that was heated seven times hotter than normal just to make sure it toasted them right quick. And then the men who threw them in stood back, and they looked, and they said, didn't we throw three dudes in the fire? And they're looking through. They're standing back. They, can't get, they can only get so close. They're looking into the fire, and they say, look, look. There's four dudes in there now, and they're just walking around. We tied them up. They're walking around, and one of them looks like the Son of God. Huh. Wonder who that could have been. Friends, when you're going through a fiery trial, whatever that is, remember you're not alone. You're never, ever alone. There's a fourth man in the furnace. And I know you're suffering now, some of us, from persecution of different kinds. Probably not as bad as someone around the world, but... It still hurts, and I know your heart is breaking. It's not fair. It's hard. It's suffering. And to the word, to, to the, the, our brothers and sisters all over the world, we give the same message. There's a fourth man with us in the furnace. And you will not be burned up because Jesus said, I will be with you always, and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So friends, always be ready to pay the price because the reward is great. Let us pray. God, as we send students off to college, we just pray that they will not only be ready to die for Jesus, they'd be ready to live for him. God, as we send students back to school in a few days, we pray that a few of them would be ready to stand up as disciples and live for Jesus. When it's unpopular for us at work, in family gatherings when they think we've joined a cult, when friends... Say we just don't fit in when we talk about faith on business trips when we're alone and tempted. Lord, help us to live for Jesus because he is our life. Help us to fix our eyes on him. And all of God's people said...